Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Dr. Christine Hoffman and Julia Seurat from St. Lawrence University about their work with wood turtles, building on our conversation with Scott Buchanan. I'm super excited to get to this interview. We had a lot of fun talking about all of the work that they did, um, getting their dog Newt up and running for this project, about Julia's experience kind of coming in as an undergraduate who learned how to handle Newt, and some really cool field finds. But before we get into it, we're going to dive into our science highlight. This week, we read the article, Training with Varying Odor Concentrations, Implications for Odor Detection Threshold in Canines. This was published in Animal Cognition by Mallory Duchant and Nathan Hall. In March of 2021, this science highlight was put together for us by our lovely volunteer, Heidi Benson. Thanks so much to Heidi. And here we go. So detection dogs are expected to generalize into a wide spectrum of target odor concentrations, including concentrations that may differ from what they have been trained on. While human studies have shown that perceived quality changes can occur with odor concentrations of 100-fold or greater, studies involving dogs are lacking. The authors were interested in determining whether odor concentration of trading aids influenced the lower threshold at which the dogs detect odors. So, to quote, 11 adoptable mixed-breed dogs with unknown histories were used for the study. All dogs were initially trained to detect a 0.1 milliliter per, per milliliter dilution of isoamyl acetate, which is banana flavor, in mineral oil. Training was conducted using PVC odor ports, positive reinforcement, and marker training. Once the dogs reached 86% accuracy or greater during double-blind trials, they moved on to a three-phase training experiment. Each phase involved 80 training trials with a specific odor concentration over a period of two days, followed by threshold testing. Six dogs were placed in an experimental group and were trained using increasingly diluted concentrations for each phase, so going from 0.01 to 0.003, and then down, down to 0 0.00. Oh, so three zeros, one milliliter per milliliter, and then five dogs were placed in a controlled group where they were trained on the 0.01 milliliter per milliliter concentration for all phases. During threshold testing, if a dog correctly detected an odor concentration twice consecutively, the concentration was diluted for the next trial. If the dog made one incorrect response, the concentration was increased for the next trial. Threshold testing continued until concentration direction was reversed six times or until 40 trials were completed. No significant threshold difference between the two groups of dogs was found during phase one when both dogs were trained to the 0.01 milliliter per milliliter dilution. However, during phase two, when experimental dogs were trained down to 0.003 milliliters per milliliter, they showed a non-significant lower mean threshold detection. For phase three, when experimental dogs were trained with the lowest concentration of 0.001 milliliter per milliliter, experimental dogs significantly outperformed control dogs. In addition, the controlled group did not show improvement between any two individual phases, whereas the experimental group showed improvement be between the two phases, um, which included a 900-fold improvement from phase one to phase three. This study highlights how the concentration of training materials may limit the detection ability of the dog. Quote, cost and time constraints only allowed for three phases of testing. More research is needed to determine if an increase in training would allow for even further odor threshold improvements. End quote. 
The authors noted that air dilution is generally preferable to liquid dilution method that was used, but that this likely did not have significant impacts on the overall study. Notably, the study only looked at the effects of decreasing odor concentrations on detection thresholds. We would love to see a similar study repeated, but using increasing odor concentrations as well. Um, it also would be interesting to see what this looks like when the dogs are actually searching an area rather than kind of in a laboratory setup where um, the dogs are just, you know, detecting or not detecting something. The dogs were not trained to have a final response to odor, a final alert, which could potentially introduce error via handler interpretation of behavior, although um, for this specific study likely was not an issue. Um, and Heidi notes that it was a really cool study overall and that she really enjoyed it. So without further ado, let's get on to our interview with Chris and Julia. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Julia and Chris. It's so lovely to have you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So why don't we start out with Julia, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up getting involved in this project. Um, it sounds like a really cool opportunity to have had so early in your career. Yeah. So I came into college not really knowing what I wanted to do and what I wanted to study. Um, but I did know that a class called Biology of Dogs would be right up my alley. So that was kind of my first um, introduction to Dr. Hoffman and dogs on a more biological level. I've worked at doggy daycares and have always loved dogs. So um, this was like the next step. And then she kind of told me a lot about Newt, who was, I think, right around nine months at the time that I was meeting him. And he was just starting to learn um, spade foot toads. And then so he had a handler at that point, um, Hannah Duffy, who is graduated already from SLU. And then um, I kind of volunteered my time to helping train Newt on days Hannah couldn't be there or on weekends, we would go to Canine College in Watertown, um, where we would uh, do more formal training. And then coming into my junior year, so fall of 2022, I think, no, 2021, fall of 2021, yes. Um, I kind of got to step in as Newt's primary handler, and I decided that I was really interested in wood turtles and focusing more on a, like a freshwater turtle species. So um, we started working with that scent with him, and then we had a, a bit of a rough start in the fall because as we were getting him ready to go into the field and actually be ready to search in the field, um, the turtles were already hibernating, so we didn't find any, and we were kind of bummed out, but we kind of just kept working through the winter, and then in the spring, we kept bringing him out to this one site that had a pretty dense population, um, and pretty much Dr. Hoffman and I were the ones that were seeing the turtles before the dog, so he was still finding them and alerting to them eventually, but we were kind of seeing them before him, uh, and then one day, it was like everything changed, and it clicked for him. And so it was like really, really exciting to kind of get to that point. Um, and it was like a week before we left for Rhode Island. Yeah. So it was like <laughs> kind of get close with the field proofing. He um, seemed to, um, he seemed to know he was looking for wood turtles, but he thought he was looking for the wood turtles that we hid. Yes. So okay. yeah, the turtles I know that's were in sense. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was definitely mm -hmm. that transition from, human scent association with like captive turtles. Like we were also using swabs from captive wood turtles, which 
I think he had trouble like making that transition too because you also have to consider you know the algae on their um, shells and any like substrate from their tanks that might also be contributing to like their overall I think like scent profile for that so um, yeah it was like once he found that first turtle he ended up finding eight during the rest of that one survey so I mean, it was like a huge 180 for him behavior wise. And, um, yeah, that, at that point I was like, okay, like I'm completely invested in this. Like I'm so much more excited now. Um, and we went into Rhode Island, which I'm sure we'll get into more, but yeah. I'm going to add that we didn't know that we were going to be working with Rhode Island when Julia started training him on wood turtles. It was just okay, you're going to work with the dog, let's not do toads again, because they they discovered that it's if you move the headlamp from your forehead to between your eyes, the, the toad's eyes reflect, and then you can see the toad 50 meters away, but the dog has a detection radius of, like, one meter, oh so he's gosh. not the best tool. And I'm oh, like, that's so you interesting. Guys, you guys couldn't figure this out before we spent a year training the dog, two years training the dog? <laughs> Yeah. So we're going to do toads again. Julia happened to pick wood turtles. And then we just, I was online one day and I saw a news article out of Rhode Island that they were looking for wood turtles down there. It's the most endangered turtle in Rhode Island and that they weren't having much luck with human sources and just like, oh, okay. So I emailed them. I'm like, you guys want a dog and a student? And they were like, yes, we would love a dog and a student. That's amazing. I, I love that you had the opportunity to do that. And that was, you know, going to be my next question is, how did you you all get connected? And, you know, we've already heard this from from Scott's side during uh, last week's episode. But I, I love that. So, Julia, what was, um, you know, what did you know anything about wood turtles ahead of time? What kind of led you to start thinking about wood turtles before even being connected with a project? Yeah, so I... Um following my freshman fall semester taking biology of dogs, Chris kind of let me skip ahead a little bit uh, down the biology, I guess, ladder of, of classes. And I got to go into her herpetology class. And I've always loved like catching frogs and flipping logs for salamanders and looking for snakes as a kid. Um, and Primarily in Maine, the only turtles that I would see were paint turtles, and those are ones that, you know, you can't really get near. They're they're gone the second you, like, are approaching them. Um, so I was, like, really, really curious about doing a, a reptilian species, and especially turtles around here. Um, so just, like, the prospect of a terrestrial turtle that we could actually find with the dog, and that's pretty cryptic, and then, you know, getting to handle them and not necessarily have to swim for them sounded very appealing. Yeah, certainly. I grew up chasing, um, chasing painted turtles down as well. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're fast. They're tough. I have a lot of yeah. good memories of being in a, in a paddle boat on the lake in Wisconsin that my grandparents lived on trying to like paddle after these poor, these poor painted turtles. Um, so yeah, that's really, really neat. And Chris, why don't we, um, how did how did Newt come into your life? Did you already know that you wanted to be training a conservation dog? Was that a happy accident? Yeah. Um, tell us about Newt's origin story. So I started doing citizen science when I was in junior high school. Massachusetts had this spotted turtle project that they were trying to figure out where the spotted turtles were. 
And we had some on my neighbor's land. My dad and I would go out and just look for turtles when we had spare time. And I'd always be out there frustrated, like a dog could do this so much better. Uh, so since then, I've had in the back of my mind that I wanted to train a turtle dog. And then when I was getting my degrees, um, I have my my master's degree from University of Florida, but that's not actually relevant now that I said that. Anyways, I, while I was getting my master's degree, I was reading about dog training for my stress relief. And then when I graduated, I got my other dog and she's your traditional like pet lineage Labrador who will find the box turtles if it's right in front of her and then bark at them. But by then I already know the turtles in front of her. She has no like patience for it. Uh, but she taught me a lot about dog training. So then once I got my job here as visiting assistant professor, uh, I was able to to like make that a priority to uh, make partners with some of the local dog trainers. We've got uh, Canine College out in Watertown, which does a lot of bite work and they do a lot of um, narcotics detection, bed bug detection. They did some search and rescue and human remains detection. So really nice training facility. They do a lot of pet dogs too. And then they hired on another trainer who also does bed bugs and narcotics. And I was able to work with both of them. And they helped me pick out a breeder and we went over different breeds. They didn't want to just like stay with labs because I knew the labs, but we wound up like for the same reason, wound up back at labs that I'm a reptile and amphibian biologist and I tend to be wet where there are ticks and labs work really well with that <laughs> sure shirt for, mm-hmm. in ponds. Um, so then we got Newt and started with some projects and we did spade for toads. We had done a, a little study the semester before with some of the faculties, different dogs, training them to find toads and uh, in the laboratory and just identifying on the toads. So I already knew that I wanted to do the turtles when I got Newt or that I wanted to do conservation work of amphibians and reptiles because that's my specialty is amphibian and reptiles. And we had his first project picked out before we got him. I didn't want to get the dog until I had a partner. Uh, so we went straight into this spadefoot toad project knowing that was going to be his first project. But yeah, that makes sense. a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, I do think at the end, I want to circle back to the spadefoot project if we've still got time and hear a little bit more about that because um, I love digging into some of these projects where it does turn out that dogs aren't the best tool. You know, first we're yeah. going to highlight all the great stuff that you and Newt have all have all done together. Um, but I also, it's so fascinating in these places where the dogs don't do really well. And particularly, I think that's not uncommon with some of our amphibians. Um, so I think I've got some selfish interest in some of our amphibian troubles as well, because we've had a couple couple folks come to us about them. And there's always some really interesting discussions about feasibility there. Um, so what did Newt's kind of really early training look like? Did you have um, the other students kind of on, on board right away with his really early training? Um, or did you do most of it on your own? Did you send him off? We did... Um combination of me and other students we got him like the day after final exam so right as everyone was leaving campus and we brought him home and like his 50th day so right after seven weeks when we were able to get him we started doing virtual work with him in tins uh and 
there were some interns that were working over the summer on some nature outreach programs. We have a program called Nature Up North at St. Lawrence University, and they do a lot of education. They do like a fishing week and uh, some farmer's markets and some citizen science and presentations. And there was three girls working for them that summer. So I would like walk into the room and be like, have this puppy. I'm going to go do this. I have a meeting. I'm dropping this with you. So right off the bat, he was used to having different people like responsible for him. And then once the semester started and my, uh, once the students got back, they started handling him more. So he learned, he had the, the very beginning, the summer with me and with the trainers in Watertown. And then I kind of handed it off to the students and they would train him during the day. Then at night I would take him home and do some training there too. And what's been nice about that is that he will listen to anyone because part of his training has been, okay, now this person's handling me and Chris might be standing right there, but she's never going to give me the ball while this person is handling me. Yeah, that's such an important lesson to, to learn for, for dogs that are going to be going through different handlers. And yeah, it's amazing that you guys were able to be so proactive with that. Um, yeah, really, really, it's, it's lovely when we're able to plan out things this well. This podcast is brought to you by our Patreon group. For as little as $3 a month, you get to ask questions for upcoming episodes, and you also get access to our online student alumni Facebook group. At $10 a month, you can join monthly coaching calls and book club calls. At $25 a month, you can submit video of you and your dog for kind, thoughtful discussion and feedback during each of those calls. And finally, at $50 a month, you get private coaching calls with me at each month. We also have exclusive merch for loyal patrons and occasional workshops, webinars, and other secret goodies for the group. We appreciate your support. So Julia, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your early training process was like when you got paired with Newt. How much did you know about dog training? Did you start off shadowing um, scent work sessions? Did you start off not doing scent work at all? What did that early process look like for you to get up and running as a handler? Um, So... Being in the biology of dogs class, I learned a lot about dog body language and how you read dogs, how you like understand how they're feeling just based on, you know, ears, tail, like everything. Um, So I entered in working with Newt, pretty much shadowing for a bit. I would go and like hide um, the target odor for for Newt before training sessions and then kind of like sit back and watch and then... Um, Newt was also hitting his his rebellious teenager phase when when I kind of was actually entering the picture. So um, the weekends were sometimes spent not doing any scent work at all, but we would be at the training um, facilities that we mentioned previously and be working on a heel with Newt and getting him to sit and down and place um, with distractions around. And sometimes it was very frustrating <laughs> because uh, he he would be like, yeah, we're not doing that today. And, you know, I would rather go play fetch or I would rather do this and very uh, independent during that small phase. But I think that almost made me like want to do this more where I'm like, oh, like I want to be your partner. I want to get you to like listen and want to work again. So um, it was a lot of just like slowly building that back. And then of course, as we were starting to get him to really take in some of these lessons, we had COVID hit. So I got sent home and the next um, semester we were 
on campus, but it was very strict. And so we could meet outside and do a little bit of training, but it's like social distancing. And um, I kind of got to handle him a bit more during that. Like uh, Chris would be like, hey, I've hid some targets, grab Newt from this classroom and, and go out and do it. Or like another professor would go and throw them off the trail in any direction and plant a flag near the trail edge. And then, you know, it'd be a lot of like independent stuff. So that was a really good learning curve as well of like having plenty of readings to do and building on the skills that I had been learning just by watching and then being kind of like tossed right into it because there was really no other option. Um, Hudson. Oh yeah. Hudson too. During um, the time at the other training facilities, he was Oh, such a great dog. He's, he was a young chocolate lab and he was being trained to do bed bug detection. So sometimes Newt would be in boot camp somewhere else and I would get to kind of walk around with Hudson who really knew what he was doing and um, learn more about like those behavioral changes when they start to get onto um, the scent. And that was really important too because while dogs do exhibit a lot of like similar trends when they're switching up their body language. Um, it's really interesting for me to like be able to pick up on the specific cues. Um, cause currently I have a 10 month old yellow lab puppy named Obi who's being taught to do turtle detection as well. And, um, watching him versus watching Newt when they start to pick up on those, uh, scent trails is hilarious. Like Newt's tail will go faster. Obi's tail will stick up straight and he starts to like really slow down. Um, yeah, it's, it's so much fun to see that. Yeah, it is. Especially once you're able to kind of start naming and identifying those things. I know that was a huge jump up for me where I'd, I'd been handling dogs for a couple years before. I think it was Steve White's um, webinar on 10,000 hour eyes that talks about like the eight signs of a dog in odor. Um, and it was a lot of those things where I'd kind of like picked up by observing. But then once I was like, oh, now I understand the difference definition wise between crabbing and bracketing. Now that I can see those things because I have a name for them, I can really help that out. And it's been fun. I've been teaching. Um, we've got an El Salvadoran intern here um, that has been learning how to do stuff. And once I was able to start pointing out some of those things and even like trying to translate things, which has been really um, interesting and challenging as soon as he was like, oh, you mean when he moves like a crab, you know, he's catecholeandoing. <laughs> that means this. And like, it's amazing how much that that helps. And it's so fascinating to see how different dogs are, even of the same breed. I've got the same thing going on in my household. Um, Barley's tail does a very characteristic, like lopsided helicopter when he first <laughs> is starting to like source odor. Um, and Niffler, Niffler's nose just drops and he's he's very still and really doesn't exhibit much at all of a change of behavior before he just drops into a down. He's really, really challenging to read. Um, yeah, so, and I think, oh, I think cool. kind of seeing those uh, behaviors definitely helps your success as a team too. Like there were multiple times um, in Rhode Island that I'd see those behavior changes and that would make me kind of focus more on on where we were, what was around me. So um, if Newt was like having trouble, like really identifying the uh, odor source, like sometimes I would spot the turtle and, and then I would kind of back off and like let him find it because 
he's the one that, yeah. you know, led me there. Um, and there was another time that he was searching really, really close to the water and like kind of went into the water, came out, like was really, really targeting this area. And um, Dr. Hoffman was actually out in the field with us that day. And so was another um, Rhode Island DM um, intern. And she had actually gone into the water and found a turtle that was kind of tucked under a log. And so it was like new, like really put us in that position where, you know, we could get in those areas that he couldn't necessarily reach and like pull the turtle, which was awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's such a lovely example and something, you know, we talk about with our students all the time. The, the alert can't be the end-all be-all of what you're doing as a handler, um, because if you're not able to recognize those changes of behavior and not able to support the dog, you're going to miss a lot of alerts. And yeah, as you just illustrated beautifully, there are going to be times where maybe the dog can't for whatever reason. But if you can read it appropriately, you might still be able to find the target. And that's really what matters at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah, so uh, my field partner, his name is Noah, and <laughs> there were a couple of sites that we got sent to that were just not at all uh, like prime wood turtle habitat so we would be like trekking through the bogs and um it would have been good for you know snapping turtles or maybe the occasional <laughs> spotted turtle but it mm-hmm. it just wasn't going to be good habitat for this and we were kind of like told to go to this transect so we were like okay we'll get through it and um we entered the water and i was like oh no it's going to be way easier to just cut through the water than to, you know, try to keep smushing through the edge of this like boggy area. And so he was like, all right. So he jumped in right in front of me and instantly like sank. <laughs> and he was like, his waders were instantly filled with water and the dogs just like swimming around next to us. And he like turned around. He was like, Julia. I was like, Oh yeah. Sorry about that Oops. one. <laughs> <laughs> really really funny um and my other favorite story was um we were also curious about eastern box turtles and kind of introducing newt to that um target as well and (laughs) we had gotten a call noah was out in the field with another um chris other chris was contracted right by yeah by rhode island to do these um box turtle surveys so they had found a small one and Noah called me. He's like, Hey, like we have one. If you uh, want to show up and do some training with it. So I was like, Oh, awesome. So Newt and I instantly got in the car. Like it was our day off, but we were like, you know, this is, this is a great training um, experience. So we got out there and we hit the box turtle for Newt and he like started to understand like, Oh, okay, this is what I'm finding. So then we started to hide it around a bit more. Um, and then there was this one like really cut area on a hill and I was like, Oh no, like, why don't you go hide it up on that? Because I'm like, that's like a great new, like topographic layout for Newt to kind of investigate like a lot of logs and that hill, which would be an extra challenge for him. Um, and so we send Newt and he's going, going, going and searching for a bit. And then he lays down and alerts and I'm like, Oh cool. He got it. So Noah and I are both approaching to where he alerted. And then I'm looking and at the same time, Noah and I looked at each other and we like realized like it hit us that this was a new box turtle. Like Newt had gone and found a box turtle like right away. Wow. Um, Oh my goodness. Yeah. And 
we were like jumping up and down like we were so excited we're instantly on the phone with with scott with chris like telling everyone that that newt had found um his first box turtle and yeah like that was that was by far one of one of my favorite memories in the field oh my gosh yeah well of course that's amazing and what what a lovely yeah what a lovely experience i had a similar on Niffler's very first day of work when he was like nine months old. And I was very much so like, are we ready? Do we know what we're doing? You know, like a lot of first day jitters. Um, the very first wind turbine we went out to as we were walking to where we were supposed to start our search to start at kind of the upwind side of where they had placed two bats in out there for us to, as part of like our, um, our pre-work exam um and he alerted to actually two targets in that field that had not been the ones that were placed out one of which being before i had actually even told him to search and it was still just like one of my favorite memories of having worked with him because i had so many first day jitters with him and it's yeah that's really exciting super super huge congrats on that yeah um so i've got i've got a couple more questions and then we can kind of round out with story time and then circle back to the um the spade foots and they're a little bit all over the place um so i wanted to backtrack chris and ask you um why julia <laughs> because i'm sure you have lots of amazing interested um you know really keen students come through mm -hmm. your classroom and um you know what what was it that made you kind of go forward with with julia and uh, you know as much as you're willing and able to share i don't want um i don't want to make that an uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. question for any of your other students who didn't get this opportunity uh, mostly it's that julia asked so i had a at a class of maybe 20, 16 one year then 16 the following year for biology of dogs and i had some students in herpetology and some other classes and Julia was just like from the beginning like this is awesome I want to do this how can I get involved and I'm like oh okay good yes and then for the previous student Hannah uh, that was really before I had gotten anything going and I was just kind of like oh you're you're in this non-majors class but you're pre-vet okay you like dogs you you like turtles and toads uh, so that's how she came around to doing it the students that I had this past year starting to um, to work with him, I actually, I had an email out to one of my classes being like, hey, so who wants to work with the dog next? And I had two students respond. So they had an independent study where they were coming in and we were working with him and hiding things and uh, trying to look for some turtles nearby. And so pretty much I look for students who... I don't look for students, really. Usually I just get students who are interested and they say they want to do it. And I'm like, all right, what's your, uh, what's your work ethic like? How much do you like dogs? Can you put up with this emotionally insecure, loud, bouncy, 60-pound weight that's going to clobber you? <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. And I... Um... Yeah, I can imagine uh, that you must get quite a bit of interest and it's, it's more about seeing who's going to be the right fit. Um, that, yeah, that sounds about right for this field. We get a lot of internship inquiries and it's a lot of, you know, kind of, kind of trying to figure out who actually is going to be able to stick with it and who we actually have the capacity for. That's a really big problem for us, but 
that's neither here nor there. So the next thing that I wanted to ask about a little bit before we, again, just kind of got it, I've got so many questions about the fieldwork itself, but what were some of your considerations and planning for safety for the turtles when you're working with, you know, a live target? Was this something that Newt was naturally very gentle with? Was, um, or was this something that you had to do quite a bit of work on to ensure that he wasn't going to be mouthing them or harassing them or anything like that? Newt gentle. Yeah, they're not really <laughs> synonymous terms. Um, however, he's so obsessed with tennis balls that, you know, he's not like trying to, you know, get the turtle at all. Like it's like shaking in his, like shake, quaking in his boots or however the phrase is. Like, just like, please, please see that I found this and give me my ball. Like, I need it. I want it. Um, so yeah, that, that was never really a problem. A little yeah. bit with the the toads, he would get frustrated. Right. Like, so we started, like one of the first things that I did when we were getting started with the toads was email Paul, Paul Bunker for advice. And he had mentioned like using a non-living scent to get the game into the dog before starting to stress out the toads. So we went with, with that. We used birch oil. Um, if I could do it over again, I'd use Kong, but I didn't know that at the time. So we, we got him to figure out like, when you find this, you alert. And then we moved to having the toads and mason jaws. And we have a, a box with holes in it that we put the mason jaws in. So it made a little lineup for him. And then we started hiding the mason jaws around outside. And we muzzled him and introduced him to the toads. And he um, did try to, like, sniff its butt a few times. And he tried to retrieve the toad once. And... In general, he's clumsy and is too busy smelling to see where his feet are. And every now and then he would step on the toad, which is not great for toad welfare. So luckily that was like when we were outside and the ground was soft. The toad never complained, but I felt really bad about that. So when we moved to turtles and they have this lovely shell that they can pull into, it was a bit of a relief. We have some turtles that we borrow from another campus, SUNY Potsdam uh, State University of New York at Potsdam is about 20 minutes from here. And Glenn Johnson has a live animal collection that he uses for teaching. He has two captive wood turtles. So we routinely borrow them for as long as he lets us. And one of them is very gentle. The other one is more scared and just pulls into his shell. So neither of them we really had to worry about them biting the dog or the dog like knocking them around and those sizable turtle a uh, wood turtle is about eight inches across its carapace the top of the shell so gotcha, not, yeah. not quite hockey puck size yeah and like yeah they're a little size. bigger yeah I, I in the field specifically with um making sure the turtles were safe like he would alert and my job was to record Noah's measurements of the turtle while throwing the ball for Newt. And then if this was a new turtle um, and we needed to pit tag it, I would then tie Newt up a good distance away from us. And he would be barking and frustrated that we were done playing fetch, but we did not need him to like come and bump into us or, you know, do anything else um, because he was notorious for knocking backpacks into the mud or water or, you know, oh, anytime no. <laughs> a backpack could possibly be trampled by muddy feet, it would be. Um, mm -hmm. So we didn't need that for the turtle, especially with handling needles and stuff. So he was kind of removed from the equation when it would come to doing something like that. Yeah. Oh, he, he very much so sounds like our quintessential lab. Um, 
Yeah, we've had similar experiences as well. Barley has a habit of if you pause throwing the ball at all, even as someone is like actively trying to collect whatever it is that he has found, he will go back and try to get his nose on it again. And if you're trying to do, say, DNA meta barcoding or something like that, and you've got like a really dry sample, the last thing you need is extra dog slobber on top of it. So we um, luckily, like when we were in Guatemala, we had an entire team with us. So I could just literally like take Barley and be rewarding him several, you know, a couple dozen meters down the trail. But um, in situations where you've got a much smaller team, yeah, it's a great point. Sometimes you just need to tie the dog up. They might be a little bit upset about it, but you know we've got to put the data first, um, at least in that situation. You know, generally dogs over data, but sometimes the dog might be a little bit upset as we're processing data. That's okay. Yeah, well, and thank you for that. I think it's always really important to make sure that we're, you know, we talk about safety um, and everything, especially for these live targets. Um, and so now I'd love to just kind of dive into a little bit more about what your search strategy was like. So Julia, you mentioned it sounds like you kind of were given search areas. Were you walking transects or within an area? Did you have the liberty of deciding how you were going to search? Um, what did that actually look like for you all in the field? Yeah, so we were given uh, one kilometer transects along um, streams and rivers that were pretty much the size that a wood turtle would prefer. Um, and my role would be to kind of like zigzag from the stream edge to say like 50 meters from the stream. Although a lot of the time we did vary from that quite a bit, um, and would go further because, um, yeah, I'd be zigzagging and for every zigzag I do, Newt's doing 20. So, um, we were covering a lot of ground that way and definitely making sure that we could, be as um, effective as possible, especially like we found that they really enjoyed certain habitat or microhabitats over others. So um, we would kind of choose to spend maybe a little more time in those areas if we came across them. Um, and usually we were pretty successful. I think our average was one to two turtles per survey and we did 15, I think total. Um, yeah. so like, we only had a couple days where we didn't find anything at all. And then we had days where we'd find eight turtles. So, um, it was pretty, pretty great. And, uh, we did have a lot of freedom with how we were conducting the surveys because, um, th everyone involved, all of our, um, collaborators like Rhode Island DEM and URI, uh, Roger Williams Park Zoo, they were all just interested in having data and, so we had like the very baseline protocol of, you know, this is the length that you're going, but we did have a lot of freedom to kind of do what would benefit the dog best and make us most successful. And that was one kilometer up one side of the stream yeah. and one kilometer back on the other side. Okay. So two kilometers total, but up and down um, each way. Yeah. Thank you. That's really great. So yeah, do you have any other stories from the field that you wanted to try to share with us, Julia? I know you've already shared a couple, but if there's anything else that came to mind, or Chris as well, anything that um, you've been particularly excited about with this wood turtle project that you wanted to be sure to get across? There, like My field partner, again, was so excited to be on the dog team instead of just doing the visual encounter surveys um, with the people teams. So he was like super, super interested in how um to understand when newt was starting to source something and um there were multiple times where he'd be like oh 
Newt's onto something. Newt's onto something. I'm like, nope. Newt's about to pee on a tree. He's not onto anything. And then be going further, and he's like, oh, Newt just Newt just turned directions really quick. I'm like, nope. Going to pee on another tree. Like he's <laughs> he's actively working, but um, it was always really really funny to kind of be like, no, not quite. We're <laughs> um, yeah, that that was always fun. Um, I love that. <laughs> there was one day that we were kind of coming out of the woods or near the end of a transect. And um, oftentimes we'd like be parking up on a top road and then trekking down to the stream. So we were kind of trying to shift back up. And Newt really, really started searching in an area and was like so locked in, so convincing that he was like really onto something. Um, And so we ended up spending 10, 10 to 15 minutes straight like trying to be like, all right, Newt, like, come around, let's search over here, and then direct him in another area, like, trying to help him out based on, you know, where the wind was moving and um, what might be the best vantage point for him. And finally, I see this little itty-bitty turtle. And I'm like, is that really what he's looking for? So I kind of call him over, and I say, in here. And he searches around that area and lays down. And I'm like, he really just found this little tiny turtle and we pick it up. And only then did we realize that it was a spotted turtle. Because again, anytime I notice something, I try to stay back. um, So I'm not on top of it and Newt can still find it himself. Um, But again, he's not trained to find spotted turtles or he's working on it now. But at that point in time, he had never been introduced. So it was definitely one of those um, instances where he was generalizing the smell of the yeah. carapace and was like, oh, I haven't found anything for a while. And this is vaguely something that I know. So I will, I will find it. And he was so like um, enthusiastic and really committed to finding it. So we wouldn't have typically spent that much longer. Um, but I was super proud that he found that one, which was really interesting. This was like a week after you taught him to find the box turtles. Yeah. Yeah, so, so oh, we had wow. added a new turtle, and then okay. he's like, oh, turtles in general. Turtles. Like, turtles, like you turtles. say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another one of my favorite little instances was uh, every time that we would get to the start of a transect, we would start recording, like, the general data, like, water depth and temperature, wind direction. So we're recording all of this, and the whole time Newt is getting to play fetch. And it's to get him all amped up and ready to rock. And so I finally get his ball from him. And I think he needed, he required a couple extra throws that morning before he was willing to start working. Um, and I finally get his ball and I look at my phone. I go, okay, 829 start, Newt, go search. And he went straight into a bush and laid down immediately. And I was like, no, Newt, I told you search. Like I wasn't convinced. I walk over and, and there's a wood turtle right there. And I'm like, you punk, you totally knew it was here this whole time, but you were getting free fetch. And why would you do work if you're getting free fetch? So it was like hilarious and <laughs> super new. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, there was once where we were entering um, the woods and we hadn't gotten to our starting point and he just drops his ball and takes off and lays down and finds a turtle. So, you know, like it can go either way with him. And that also makes it really, really fun and exciting. Cause you're like, Oh, he has his ball and it's choosing to drop it and work or he has his ball and he knows something's there, but 
the game is more fun. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It, and it's always funny when we do have those moments where we doubt our dogs and then they, they prove us right. They prove us wrong. Um, and I think one of the things that I love most about this, this job is frustrating as it can be sometimes with, um, with the dogs is, you know, they do really keep us on our toes. Well, I think, um, if that's, if that's it for field stories, I'd love to ask a little bit more about what's next for the both of you. It sounds like Julia, you've got your own pup now. What's next for, for you? And I'm so sorry, I forgot his name already. <laughs> Obi. Um, you and Obi. Obi-Wan. And then, yeah, yeah. what's next Obi-Wan. for, uh, for oh, Obi-Wan? Um, and then what's <laughs> next for uh, Nude and, and Chris? Uh, we are returning to Rhode Island. Before that, like this coming, this spring, in a few weeks, we're going to start a wood turtle project in upstate New York. And we'll be doing that. Julia's working on that. If Obi is ready during that project, he's going to join us. And that is, it's going to be like five days a week looking for wood turtles on a site that's about an hour from campus. And it's, it works out perfectly because I was teaching gen bio for the first half of the semester. And now someone else is taking it over and I don't have to deal with, uh, trying to pretend I know cells and molecules and uh, get to go look for turtles instead of the rest of the semester. And as soon as that ends, Newt goes down to Rhode Island. We're trying to get funding for Julia to go with him, but he also has a new student, Evelyn, who's going to be helping him in the field or handling him in the field for four weeks in Rhode Island to continue that project. And then he's going to go to Long Island, New York, and look for spotted turtles. So he gets more jobs than I do, which is okay. Yeah, yeah, isn't that that's the way sometimes of the I, I I honestly often wish that I had my dog's job more than my own job. Um, they get out of the, all the grant writing too. It's just not fair. I know the computer work. I know the constant yeah. meetings and emails. Yeah, yeah, I really, I, and they don't even have to drive to the field site. I am still waiting for the day that Barley starts taking his turn behind the wheel. Um, my other dog is 15, so I, mm-hmm. you know, it'll it's, look over those regulations. Time. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's what I keep telling Barley. I'm like, you got, you got seven years still, but when that comes around, I do expect you to be driving to the field sites for us. So, oh, that's so exciting. Um, and Julia, how much longer do you have left in in school? How much longer are you hanging around? And then you and Obi-Wan are off elsewhere or what's up? Um, oh gosh, I don't want to think about it. Um, <laughs> I graduate in May, so I'm, I'm nearing the end of my collegiate journey. Um, I do hope to go to grad school and continue working with turtles and detector dogs. Um, and then I mean, Obi and I are probably going to end up following Newt, whether or not we actually get some funding for me to be paid, or I'm just there because I love Newt and love turtles. Um, And I will be doing the spotted turtles uh, with Newt. And then from there, I'm not really sure. Come the fall. Yeah, come the fall, maybe some um, wind turbine stuff out west. Like, there's there's some prospects. So unless Obi is like locked in ready, like I'm kind of letting him learn at his own pace. He's Mm -hmm. incredibly intelligent and loves it. Like if he knows we're going to do nose work, he's like so excited Um, and he's really good at it, but it's more like making sure he checks all of the boxes first. Um, 
he's great off leash until certain like squirrels and you know anything that could be a distractor for him um so until he's he's concrete with with his recall i'm not really gonna push him too hard to be out in the field um so yeah he definitely needs to earn that that privilege first even though of he's course. great with his nose yeah. he's getting better with the bunny we've got a yeah. pet bunny at my house and we we dogs at obi and uh He's learned not to chase the bunny in a play kind of way, but he'll chase the bunny in a I want to play with you kind of way, which is an improvement. Yes. Yeah, gosh. Well, and teenage boys are, our teenage boy dogs are a little tough. Niffler had a, a very nasty bird chasing phase for a couple months there, which was very challenging on the wind farm because you can see birds for miles in every direction there and you know as long as there was stuff to be found he did okay but when we had periods of time where the bat migration was really low and he was you know having to search four or five six turbines in a row without finding anything um he really struggled with that so you know that's also where that handy dandy long line can come back um but that's really exciting julianne i apologize for doing the like senior year thing of it's only march and i'm already <laughs> asking you what you're doing i know that's very rude and i apologize no, <laughs> um, no, okay. yeah that's so cool though so i'd love to as we're wrapping up here last question is there anything else that you'd love to share about the spadefoot toad project and kind of the particularities of why that didn't end up being the the right foot was it really just the headlamp thing or um it, yeah was there anything was else the headlamp thing but also he just wasn't that good at it so this was in the phase where it's my first project it's my first real detector dog it's my students first project on it so we're all green to begin with and then we have a species that's primarily underground in sand uh and it was a site where they were reintroducing the toad. So the, the toad had been extirpated from the site. And they had released thousands of tadpoles, froglets, that had been raised by school children. So that the kids got the, the tadpoles. They raised them into just past metamorphosis, which is the technical term is a froglet. Cutest jargon ever. And they released thousands of froglets at the site over 12 different years. And they're hard to catch, so they weren't sure were they all getting eaten, were they all drying up, were they surviving and repopulating this site, and they hadn't had uh, breeding at the wetlands that they had recreated and all the habitat restoration that they had put into it. So to try to get a metric on was this working, was it worth it at all, they had us come in with the dog and... I think that Newt didn't understand he was looking for toads that we hadn't handled before because we don't have spadefoot toads this far north in New York for him to, to train with before we got to the site. Uh, and when we when we went to other sites, he would find the toads that other people had just put down instead of the other toads. On top of that, like when the toads did come out, if it was like a human night with lots of bugs and they all started to emerge, there were tons of them together and there was one point where he was we found a toad we had him alert on it and then we processed the toad and told him to go back and alert to it again and he alerted to a different toad and then he alerted to a leaf and i'm like that's not the toad that's a leaf and i pick up the leaf and there's a half gram toad underneath it so it was just inundated with scent to begin with the toads were everywhere so between it being underground and small and all the scent sources and him not you know, it being his first job and maybe he was looking for toads that had people sent, it was a combination of the headlamps are better and he needed more experience and I needed more experience. 
So hard to say which which actually was yeah. the nail in the coffin there. But it just if he's gonna if we're gonna put time into working with him, it, it's better to use a site in a, a species where it's gonna make more of a difference. So turtles are good for that. Turtles are yeah. much bigger than toads. They smell a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, no, it sounds like kind of the classic, well, there was a couple different things that weren't working out super well. Maybe the perfect dog for this project with a bit more experience could have done a little bit better. But yeah, once you figured out that that headlamp thing, it yeah. probably does make more sense. So so with the Bob Frog interview you had a few weeks ago, like I had yeah. been reading some of the uh, press before uh, before we went down into the spadefoot toad things, and I'm like, oh yeah, there are other dogs that find underground frogs. Oh yeah, this this can be done. I'm like yeah, yeah, it certainly okay. can be. Yeah. I know. Well, and I know we've uh, we've been chatting for a, a couple years now with some of the folks out of San Diego Zoo that are working with. I think it's the yellow-legged frog down there. There are certainly um, programs with dogs or with live um, frogs or toads that have been successful. But I also know. You know, whenever someone reaches out to us about an amphibian, I've got, you know, a couple little flags that go off in my head about like, all right, we're going to see whether or not this actually yeah. works super well and whether or not the dogs actually are the best fit. Um, it's not as straightforward as, you know, when someone comes to us asking about dogs and carnivores scat, I usually am able to kind of pretty confidently be like, yeah, you know, I think I think we can, I feel pretty comfortable saying odds are we're going to be able to do this just fine. Feasibility as far as like detection it's not my biggest concern when we're talking carnivore scat. Anyway. Um, but when we're talking live amphibians, we've got more questions. Newt just started snowing behind us oh. on the floor. I wish we could hear it. I unfortunately am not picking it up on my end. Oh, he's wagging his tail in his sleep too. Oh, baby. Uh, so I hope he's dreaming about turtles. Sal oh, yeah. My PhD <laughs> was in salamanders and people will ask me all the time, oh, so you're going to train Newt to do salamanders? And I'm like, well, I was radio tracking them trying to dig them up and they move fast underground when you try to dig them up so he might alert and you might know that the salamander is within a foot but by the time you get to it it's six meters away so no underground salamanders not gonna work yeah yeah well and i know one of the challenges with a lot of salamanders too is as soon as you're if you're trying to confirm that they're there then you're starting to destroy the very habitat that they need um which you know can be a whole other other question we've got someone else in patreon who's been trying to figure out how to do some really cool work with salamanders and we've been really struggling with figuring out how to how to make that into something that's going to make the most sense and still be um both successful for the for science but also really respectful of the salamanders they're they're, they're tricky my nerd part of the brain is like, oh, what's your challenges? But no, that's that's another conversation. Yeah, I'll, uh, actually, I think I probably should connect the two of you. So I'll, I'll do that after we get off this call. Well, thank you both so much for coming on this show. And um, maybe we'll have to have you both on uh, again in a couple of years to hear about what all of you are up to. And um, I'm really excited to see where everything goes. Um, we will make sure to link... Um, and give shout outs to all of your partners and everyone else who helped out with this project, because I know there's a lot that we weren't able to mention here, but that'll all be in the show notes so we can make sure that everything's spelled and linked correctly. Um, do either of you or Chris, does your lab have social media or anything that you would like to, to give a shout out to if anyone is interested in keeping up with the work that you all are up to in the future? Um, I would say to Google St. Lawrence University and then within the biology de department, there will be... Um, a faculty link and most of my stuff is underneath that yeah and then for me i have um an instagram facebook um wolves for wildlife 
which is where I'm kind of putting all of my work with the dogs, as well as cute nature-inspired dog collars, if anyone is interested. (laughs) Ooh, that's good to know. Always in the market for more dog collars, unfortunately, for my bank account. All right. Well, great. We'll link all of that again in the show notes. And for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to go outside, maybe fall in a bog and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find those show notes we keep talking about. Donate to Canine Conservationists, sign up for an online class, and or join Patreon all at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.